Good morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. Hope you've got a couple things with you. One is your Bible. Turn with me to 2 Peter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning. We're, we're about two weeks in, our new series in 2 Peter, and so I'm excited about that. And as you read, hopefully you'll put this, uh, this wonderful letter as part of your normal study and reading as you, as you, on your personal time, get to know 2 Peter well. I hope you got a sermon notes back and front, back there on the table if you don't, and also an info guide. This helps us, both that and to familiarize yourself with our website so that we don't have to use time in the service for announcements. We can focus on worship and word. So 2 Peter 1, verse 5, if you've got that in your Bibles, please stand with me. And as we stand, brothers and sisters, as Chris has already told us, if any Sunday we need to be reminded, Sunday is one of them. When God's Word speaks, God speaks. This is is God's Word. This is not Peter's opinion this morning. This is what has been recorded. This is God's Word. And so God says in 2 Peter 1 and verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has cleansed, he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way you will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. So Lord, your word is abundantly clear this morning. Of what those who have been called from a kingdom of darkness and selfishness and Greed and envy and all those things that we've watched on the news this week. We have been saved from those things. We have been redeemed. We have been rescued. We have been given a calling. And this calling looks like something in our lives. And so God help us. Save people this morning, Lord. By your mercy. And for those of us who need to be Reminded, would you graciously orient us this morning back to the cross? Back to that moment that we were forgiven. So Lord, grant us wisdom today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. So if you were to ask me, Stephen, what's your 
favorite attribute of God. You wouldn't have to say, you know, hey, give me an hour or two and we'll, you know, I'll get back. No, I'd say, I got it. Ready? (laughs) Sovereignty. I love it. We love it. I hope you notice it. We, We sing a lot about it. We talk a lot about it. I believe it's one of the most indispensable tools in my parenting. That our God is a sovereign God. Our God needs nothing. He doesn't need me this morning. He wills. And it is. He plans. And He acts. And no one can stay His hand. No one can say, what have you done? He's God. He's the only sovereignly free person. He is completely independent. It's good this morning. We've, we see that in verse 3 and 4 last week. Let's let your, let your eyes go back up to what we talked about last week. In ver, even in verse 1, we see that we have obtained a faith. That faith was given to us. And then he, because of that, verse 3, He grants us power. Did you see that? grants us power to everything for life and godliness. And He... And not only that, he, he grants us promises. He promises that we're going to be partakers of the divine nature now. We're going to talk about that today. And in its fullness in eternity. He promises us that we're going to escape the corruption of sin now. And then completely in eternity. This is the promise of God. He's given to us. God calls you to salvation without any initiative from you calls you to Himself. He called me to Himself. And those whom He calls, He promises to keep. Don't you lose that this morning during the message. Because of this, our lives are defined by this gracious calling. It changes everything. But today, the same people that Peter has just said that to, he leans over to them and says, but you are responsible to use what God has given. Are you using it? And so we have this Peter leaning into the lives of these believers. He's leaning into lives who profess to be believers. Do we as Christ followers have an obligation that comes with our calling? Or have we, as it were, stuck our ticket so that we don't go to hell into our back pocket and then live our life as if it doesn't matter? Peter's concerned this morning. He's concerned in this letter. We should be concerned. So many of us in evangelical Christianity live as if this calling has no impact in our daily life, in the way we treat our wives. The way we treat our husbands, the way we love our kids. God wants us to remember our calling this morning. And to be resolved and determined to live our lives in such a way. We need to remember God's call comes with an obligation. And this obligation is urgent. Peter unpacks this obligation with an appeal. Then he gives us a list just so that we're clear. He gives us a list. Some of us love that. Some of us hate it. But there's a list here of 
attributes of Christ-like virtues we're supposed to be pursuing. He tells us the aim of it. In other words, what's at stake if we do pursue it or if we do not? And so the appeal picks up in verse 5. You see it? For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Do you see this first four words? For this very reason. In other words, everything I'm about to say to you, your responsibility, it's a natural conclusion because He is sovereign. Because He has given us everything. And so He lays this picture in our mind. As if our lives is a building with, made up of bricks and God lays the foundation. He gives us saving faith. He took the initiative to do that. We couldn't do that. And that our lives is a divine construction project whereby they are actual bricks that we are responsible to construct. So we see the tension, don't we? I hope you feel it. The tension between sovereignty and responsibility is palatable this morning in this text. It's supposed to be. Philippians 2, 13. Just so that we're clear that you don't need to think that Peter's just having a bad day. Peter's just frustrated in what he's saying. No, this is the, the message from beginning to end in the Bible. Philippians 2, verse 12. Anytime we read this, we must always read verse 13 with it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What is he saying? He's saying... It's God who works in you. So work. That's what he's saying this morning. And this work looks like something. So he says, make every effort. Verse 5. This is the Greek word spude. It means urgency. But it's not just urgency for the sake of urgency. There's zeal with it. There's passion with it. In other words, this is not like paying your taxes. This is not like, you know, if you're getting a refund, whoo, send that thing off quick. But if you got to pay, I'm sending it off at the last minute. Make sure it's registered so I don't get penalized, but it's, it's reluctant. Simply an obligation with no passion, no zeal. This is not what he's talking about. He's saying, you must make every urgent, zealous, this is your Passion to do what? Look at it. Supplement your faith. That initial saving faith. You didn't do that. Didn't. That was given to you as a gift. And now it says, because of that, you need to supplement. You need to you need such a supply beside something generous and something costly. That's what this is referring to. This is generous. This is costly participation on your part. Why? It's because for those that live in light of God's gracious and 
precious gift through Christ, we are compelled to reflect that generous and costly sacrifice in our actual life. And he says we do it through cooperating with him in our maturity in the faith and others' maturity in the faith. This is what it looks like. And so he provides a list. We're going to come back to this list in our application. This is a list of attributes that grow out of this initial faith in Christ. These things are growing. These things are ever-expanding. What do they look like? Well, look with me in 5 to 7. It says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That's goodness. Moral excellence. And virtue with knowledge. Do you remember last week we talked about what kind of knowledge this is? God gives us knowledge of Him. This is intimate knowledge at our salvation. And now what we see, this, this is particular type of knowledge. This is intellectual knowledge. This is growing to know about Him. Who, who is He? How does He work? And then apply that to our life. We supplement that. We add to our faith virtue and virtue with knowledge. And then look at verse 6. And knowledge with self-control. Self-control for a Christian is a life that is controlled by Christ. We seek that to be to grow and self-control with steadfastness. This is our perseverance. This is our endurance. And with our steadfastness, godliness. This is our purity. This is our holiness in our actual life. Verse 7. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. That word love there is agape. Talk more about that later. So we see here that these qualities, the Christ-like qualities... These are all qualities we would have seen in the life of Christ in perfection. But I don't know what's going on inside of you this morning when you see a list. Something happens when you see a list. It does. If you were raised in a very legalistic way, a very list follower way, if you might have a really strong task-oriented tendency in your personality, then you're going to make this into a list on your sermon notes and you're going to leave a little place beside of it to do what? Check it. Check it, I like to check off them lists and get I'm done. Not sure if I can watch that movie or not. Did I do everything on the list? How legalism plays out in our mind. Or could be a rebel. What do rebels do with lists? Yeah, we go the opposite way. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list, as if we can check it off like we used to do in our our offering envelopes. This is about pursuing a life that reflects somebody. These virtues are about Christ. They reflect Him. So now our life is about growing in His likeness. It's not meant to be exhaustive. And if you find yourself rebelling against this, you're simply rebelling against Christ. Not a list. So what's the goal? The goal is the same thing we said last week was the fuel. Remember what the fuel is here that drives this divine power. Hosea 6.3 says this, Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And so think of this, that knowing, knowing God, both intimately and holistically in our life, is both the fuel 
for our divine power to share in our divine nature. And it's also the goal. So this is self-replenishing. As we pursue to be like Him, we get to know Him. As we get to know Him, we want to be more like Him. Quote, the issue isn't whether the believer has them, speaking of these qualities, or not. The issue is that the believer needs to grow in the degree to which he or she is demonstrating them. The question is, if we have truly been born again, these have been given to us, and we're responsible to demonstrate them, to cultivate them, and to see that they grow. What's the purpose? What's the aim? What's at stake? Look at verse 8 and 9. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's important here to stop for just a second. Remember the context. What's, what's the context of this passage? Remember, Peter's writing to a probably a mixed audience, but mostly Gentiles. And they are being inundated by false teachers. Remember we talked about that last week. False teachers don't make frontal assaults. They come in beside of you. They, they, they make friends with you, and then they, but they have a goal. The goal is to deceive. And so what he's saying is, is these are absolutely imperative to not fall, to not cave under the onslaught of false teaching that is coming on these people and that is coming on you today. So he fleshes this out in both a positive way and then a negative way. Verse 8, we see the positive. It says, if these qualities are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. And so this is a positive. This word increasing means to abound. It means to overflow. It means that God in his sovereign economy makes your cup too small. We're not three-quarter cup Christians. He makes it that if we are growing... And if we are thriving, if we're making every effort, then our cup is made to overflow. Your cup is made to get all over other people. We're not supposed to keep it in. We're not supposed to put it in like we put in a Yeti and put a top on it. No, no, it's, it's a cup made to overflow. And this is present active. This is, this is what you are doing right now. In other words... Christianity is never meant to be, nor is it something that you do when you're eight and you live off of it the rest of your life. If you haven't been saved when you're eight, this abounding, this spiritual Christ-likeness grows presently, actively in your life and it carries you straight into the presence of God. He says, that's true, that keeps you. Keeps you from what? Keeps you from falling. Under the power of the false teachers. And it makes you effective. It makes you fruitful. Do you see that? In the knowledge. You can't get away from this knowing God in this, in this letter. It's everywhere. Ultimately, what we want to be effective and fruitful for. It's not what we can do for God. It is that we want to know God. We want to know Christ. But look at those two words, ineffective or unfruitful. If we put it in a negative way, it's the only way we can understand the positive. In other words, if you, pers if you pursue these things, you won't be lazy. You won't be unpleasant. It's deadly. 
This needs to concern you this morning because if you're not growing, you're dying. This is why Peter is telling us we need to remember this morning that if you pursue these things, you'll be effective, you'll be fruitful. You'll know Christ more and more. Listen to this. This is the effect of it. Quote, true, true knowledge of Christ will always spark an unquenchable desire to know Him better and better and to seek to use that knowledge in the service of others. Quote. So there's a positive. It'll make you effective. It'll make you fruitful. You'll get to know Christ better through this pursuit. But there's also a negative. Whoever lacks these qualities. If you're not pursuing these qualities, if these things doesn't, if these do not matter to you, what it says in verse 9, that person is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he, is, he was cleansed from his former sins. So he uses this very rare term, and he uses two words together, nearsighted and blind. Don't see these much. He uses them as a parallel way to say the same thing. What is he saying? He's saying that this person, that if your life is not characterized by these qualities, and if they are not your, your goal to grow in them so that you might know Christ, here's the reality in your life. That you only care about what's right here. What I want is most important. What people can give me is most important. What they can offer me. My stuff. My this. I that. I need this. This is what's just important. And you have no desire to look at you, have no kingdom mindset. You are not thinking about the eternal things. You are, you are only thinking about your worldly present situation. That's what he means there. That's, you can see that, but you can't see. This is concerning to Peter. You can't see. What's the implication? Verse 9 of this spiritual blindness. They have forgotten that he was cleansed of his former sins. So there seems to be in this spiritual blindness a couple of different potential possibilities of who he's talking about here. But there's some ignorance that may be happening here and there could be some intentional ignoring. He uses this metaphor of cleansing of his former sins to speak of forgiveness. And we know that from both in the Old Testament and the New. That he's forgotten about Christ's work on the cross and what it provided. So what are the conditions of these potential that he's writing to? What are the potentially two conditions going on here that it's describing? And both of them critical to pay attention to this morning. The first one is apostasy. We're going to see that more in chapter 2, but this is a complete denial of the faith. We'll look at that more later, but apostasy is to see the truth and to follow the truth and to intentionally turn around and walk the other way. And as we see here, most of the time people use that to also, also deceive others. Serious. There's another application to that. It's alive and well in the biblical South. It's the fake Christian. What does the fake Christian look like? Oh, he's made a profession. He makes a profession. 
but he never grows in his Christian character. Their lives don't look any different than before they made their profession. In other words, turn with me to Matthew 7, 16. Jesus would say, their lives have no fruit. Matthew 7, verse 16. This is the absolute clarity of God's Word, brother. sisters. You will recognize them, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying at the end of the day, whether you say you're an apple tree or not, if you're an apple tree, what is an apple tree going to have hanging on the limbs? Apples. So what? This is the first person. It is the fake Christian. It is the apostate who sees it, understands it, and walks away from it, but could also be someone who is truly saved. Could be who he's reminding here as well. That sin has begun to cloud their testimony. They are experiencing what we would call gospel amnesia. Though they have put their faith in Christ and are clinging to the cross, yet they have begun to dabble in sin and their orientation has begun to move. This person will never be and can never be confident that they were cleansed and rescued in the first place because they are oriented in the wrong direction. And he's saying, you need to remember this. You see, this urgent pursuing of Christ is the basis of our confidence and our assurance and our faith. If we're increasing, if we're not increasing in the effect of our godly character in our lives, we cannot be confident that we are truly saved. Because God has promised, this is just what it produces. John MacArthur says this, Assurance of salvation is directly related to present spiritual service and obedience, not merely to a past salvation event made dim in the, in the disobedient believer's memory. So which is it, Stephen? Is it, is it an apostasy that he's talking about? Or is it just a person who's, who's begun to dabble in sin and who's orient, has gotten disoriented we don't know and listen probably Peter doesn't know either what does Peter know here's what he knows that there are some professing Christians that were both ineffective and unfruitful that's what he's seeing and so what does he do he's saying you're responsible to pursue Christ likeness in your life Today, 
presently, actively, and it's going to cost you something. This is what it means to be a Christian and to mature in Christ's likeness. We have an obligation. And listen, we need to remember God's call also requires validation. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Christina and I love to go to the Cheesecake Factory. She likes it more than me, but I love, I love the fact that she loves it. And that makes it worth it. And... Uh, that was, that was a sweet moment there, wasn't it? That was good. Oh, nobody done that. That didn't help me at all. See, that was, that, see that's actually, no, anyway, we'll get off the subject. So if you ever, South Park is not exactly one of the places that we hang out a lot. <laughs> but what I am impressed with is you can, if you really want to, you can get out there and give the valet your keys, and they'll give you a ticket, and they'll go park your car for you and everything. It's really nice. And uh, imagine you went to a place like that, and you pull into the parking lot and they give you a ticket. And so you go and you eat at this nice restaurant. Before you go, you go by the desk and they validate your ticket. What I want you to see this morning. You don't have to get this ticket validated in order to get some food. But in order to get out of the parking place without having to pay, you have to have that ticket validated so it's proof that you had some food. So we need to see that this morning. There's, there's something at stake here. And it's serious. That we're not saying that you earn your salvation. Or that you keep your salvation. We're saying that if in fact you have been saved, your life serves as a validation for that calling. In other words, if you have been born again you are being sanctified, made like Christ right now. And if you are, have not been made like Christ now, you can never have any confidence that you have been born again. Because they are connected together. And so Peter gives a very stirring plea. Then he also gives an amazing promise. What is his plea? Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is an imperative again. We have multiple imperatives here. All, all centered around this one Greek word, spude, which is make every urgent. This is urgent. Be all the more diligent. That's, that's what that means. It's a verb. requires zeal. It, it requires you expending your energy and effort. You see, our sanctification is a high priority in our life, and your sanctification should be a higher priority in my life. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's going to take physical and moral effort. It's present tense. It's not something that, that when you go on vacation, you're not being sanctified. It's, it's always in your life. This is who you are. And so what is this activity? That we're supposed to be doing. It's all offered in relationship to really one thing. Expressed 
in two ways. Your calling and your election. And so, saying, you're responsible to make your calling and your election sure. Strenuously. Make it sure. Just to be clear, you're calling an election. God's salvation is both elective and it is effective. It is elective. We have already seen this in verses 3 to 5. It is God who is creating faith. It is God who is resourcing us for this God life that we are required to pursue. It is God giving us the divine nature. It is God freeing us. God choosing to do those things. But it is also effective. At some point in history, God's word came to you and came to me, and we responded to that word, and every all of these promises and all of these things that we have studied comes into our life. But listen to me. No matter what you believe this morning about election, that's not the point this morning. It's not. So don't let it become the point. It's not the point. In other words, if we could see a highlighted place in in Peter's letter, it wouldn't be there. Peter is emphasizing here what man needs to do. He's already made it clear what God has done. He's talking about us. He's talking about you. He's saying we must confirm. We must ratify our calling. As believers in Jesus Christ. This is the emphatic verb here. We as professing Christians are responsible for this. Listen to this. The ethical fruits of Christian faith are objectively necessary for the attainment of final salvation. Now that just needs to sit on you. And sometimes these these absolute truths that are all through God's Word to the very end in Revelation is so hard to chew up because we have taken our theology to a place that it was never intended to go. This should be stirring to many of us that it is the false teachers who are saying this, I'm called and elected. I'm so called and elected It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. And not only does it not matter how I live and what I do, it doesn't matter what you do either. So come follow me. Since since we have this higher state of reality of knowing God, then we can just live like a bunch of pigs. Peter's saying under the authority of Scripture, that's absolutely wrong. It is a heresy. And is alive and well today. You see, Christian calling and Christian living go together and they cannot be separated. If you do not have Christian living, you do not have Christ calling in your life. It's alive and well in evangelical Christianity, us touring around with this heresy. The salvation is something that can be secured by some kind of 
profession. And then we go through our life in a state of spiritual stagnation or even absolute rebellion. Peter says, no way. You are responsible as Christ followers to pursue Christ's likeness. Our calling and election, listen, make no mistake, hear me. Our calling and election is secure in the mind of God. It is. But our calling and election are insecure if they aren't validated by growth in Christ's character. 2 Timothy 2.19 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Do you see that? It's settled in the mind of God. God knows whose are His. But He also says, my sheep hear my voice and they do what? They follow me. What's it going to look like to follow Christ? It's going to look like that we are departing from something else. Nothing is more deceptive in the church today, then this lie that we can engage in some kind of religious exercise that secures eternity and excuses our efforts results in stagnant growth and rebellion against the living God. Here's the very truth and the very clearest way I can say it. You will become like who you are following. You will. You are becoming like what you are following. The question is, are you following Jesus Christ? And if you are, these Christ-like virtues will be a reality and growing in your life. And to those, and those only, is giving a promise. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, look at, look at this, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's twofold promises here. Do you see them? First is what in verse 10? You will never fall. This has both a now and a not yet reality to it. You're not going to fall under the influence and apostatize yourself by believing what these, what these false teachers are teaching. But ultimately what he's pointing to for those who can see it is you will not finally fall. You will not eternally fall. You will not. Why? Because God has called you. And because he's called you, you have pursued Christ's likeness in your actual life and in the lives of those that he has put in your life. What else? Look at verse 11. For in this way will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. And it's of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so what we gain access to is who we've been seeking to know our whole life. Why would you want to go to a place with a person who you don't care about? Who you haven't used your whole life to get to know and reflect. This is what eternity is. And for those who do are given a promise, you will gain entrance and it will be richly provided. In other words, there is no back door into heaven. 
And I'm sorry for the introverts in the room, and I is one. There's going to be some fanfare with this entrance. There is. This is like a person in the Olympic Games where your friends and your family and all those that are in Christ are welcoming us into this kingdom richly embraced. This is what it's going to be like. This is a promise. So what today? Well, look back with me in 2 Peter. Just as we close, I just wanted to spend us a few minutes... And you're blessed today because you're the second service. I cut out quite a few minutes of the sermon so I could take my time through this. (laughs) I want us just to ask this question. Honestly, this morning, with these two realities, that either there could be in the room today a person who has never truly believed and your life bears witness to it, or there could be a person in the room who the things of this world has knocked your orientation off. And I just want to remind you of something this morning by looking at this list. I want us to remind ourselves. Because only you know you. Only you know who you were before Christ. I want us to remember what we've been forgiven of through this list. Because this is not only something that we are supposed to and are responsible to pursue. Listen, if Christ wouldn't have saved you, it would be an impossible list. It is. And so we see that we are responsible to pursue. We have the privilege and the ability to pursue goodness. This, in your translation, may say virtue. This is a moral excellence. If you put this virtue in a pod, you boil it down To get into the least common thing, this is going to be honesty and integrity. Do you realize that if you let your mind go to who you were before Christ, your life was characterized by deception? Think about how you treated those you were supposed to love. Think about how you lived in your actual life, in your actual business. Do you know most businesses today are built on deception? It's the way it works. Look at advertising. It's built on buying somebody a lie and getting them to buy into it long enough for them to pull out the plastic. That's who you were. Listen to Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You had no ability to do that before God saved you. But not only that, Think about what else he's given us the ability to pursue. Practical wisdom. Got to feel this this morning. Jeremiah 10.14 paints a picture of the reality of an ignorant idol worshiper. That's what he says. I'm not making this up. This is what the Bible says. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false and there's no breath in them and they're worthless, a work of delusion. And at the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Do you see that? Do you know that before Christ, we were ignorant idol worshipers? We put our hope and our trust and our love and our passions in campers and boats and places at this and places at that and who we were and statuses and titles. 
only to find they all decay and fade away. It is only in Christ that we can understand. I get to know God. Think about that this morning. I get to talk about Him. I get to have a place in the Bible I can go and find out what I'm supposed to do next week with this friend that's in this life of sin and I don't know how to answer. And I say, I get to go to the Bible. It's got the answer. You didn't have that before. It took blood. The blood of Christ has sacrificed to give us the ability to have practical wisdom in our everyday life. But not only that, we get to pursue self-control. Listen to the false teachers in 2 Peter 2.14. Here's their character. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Does that describe you now, or does that describe who you were before Christ? Because if you are the redeemed today, you remember a time when you could not not sin. You couldn't. You didn't want to. No, that pursuit of that lust wasn't you seeking for God. You loved it. You loved the lust. You enjoyed the sin. That's who you were. And Christ redeemed us. And he, now we live a life controlled by Him. And He's given us the ability for that to grow in our life and persevere. Look at the next one. Persevere. Endurance. We get to pursue that. What's the opposite of endurance? Apathy. Do you remember a time when you just didn't care? So I hope that comforts you this morning. I'm not talking about some idealized spiritual perfection that keeps you on the treadmill all the time. I'm saying that God's given you a gift and now you care about your sin. Now you're broken over your sin. God give that to you. There was a time when Ephesians 4.18 was true of me and it was true of you that we are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in them due to what? Their hardness of heart. There was a time when your life, your heart was so hard that you just didn't care. You didn't care who you hurt. But now, God has forgiven you. And God often breaks you. That's a gift. He gives you godliness. It's a desire for purity. That's what that is. What's the opposite of purity? You need to listen to me, Christians. The opposite of purity is hypocrisy. Listen, God hates hypocrisy. He hates it. Why? Listen to the Pharisees. Listen to what hypocrisy at his very nature is. Matthew 23, 5. They do all their good, all their deeds to be seen by others. Before Christ, on your best day, when you did that best good thing, you did it so that somebody else can make much of you. Had no ability not to until God saved you. Now, I don't need you to believe 
that somehow you have a perfect pastor. Because you don't. If you've been here long enough, you know that. I want to be genuine. I want to have a church made up of real Christ followers that when they fall, they repent and get back up. And that brotherly, they love each other. Look at the next one. He gives you the ability to have brotherly affection. What's the opposite of that? Self-centered isolation. That's this opposite. You know what self-centered isolation says? I don't need you to hold me accountable. Here's what isolation, self-centered isolation does before Christ. You get home from school and you go in your room and you shut your door and you isolate yourself until the maid gets supper ready. That's the character of an unbeliever who uses people that loves them to get what they want. But God gives us the ability to love each other. I mean, this is what I know. There's brothers in this church. I need Tommy. I need him. Christ died to make us one. I can't grow, and I want to grow, and I can't grow without Tommy. You understand this? We didn't have this before. Christ died to give us a church, to give us a family. If you're the only one in your family and everyone has left you, God saves you to give you a family. You didn't have that before. I'm the greatest. And I just study this morning. It's so hard to express it. I understand it. Is this word love? This is a sacrificial love. This is not something you had before you were in Christ. You didn't. Think about this with me. Of the three Greek words for love, phileo, eros, and agape, both phileo and eros provide something mutual. Phileo provides mutual solace, mutual comfort. Eros provides mutual satisfaction. In both of these, these feelings are arrived, aroused because of what one is. Because of what the loved one is. Not so with agape. God's agape toward you, toward me, is not evoked Because of what we are. It's evoked because of what he is. This is is in a different ballpark than what the world can understand. Agape has its origin in the agent, not the object. In other words, this is what we need to remember this morning. It is not that we were lovable, but that he is loved that we are in him. You need to remember that. Listen, what, what is agape? How do I apply that into my life? God's given me the ability. This is what you're supposed to be pursuing. Listen to me. A deliberate desire for the highest good of the one loved, which shows itself in sacrificial action for that person's good. You see that? It's a deliberate desire for the highest good of the one loved, which shows itself in sacrificial action for the For that person's good. In other words, I don't do it because I get anything in return. I do it because of who I am in Christ. 
I can't not do it. This is the Christian life. And listen, this is the glue that holds the rest of the attributes together. Because with that, you have nothing. And so let's be clear. We have been forgiven of deception and ignorant idolatry and unquenchable appetite for sin and spiritual apathy and self and that we were a self-loving user of people, incapable of loving anyone, and yet because of Jesus, Psalms 103 verse 10 is true. Listen to how God treated you. He does not deal with us according to our sin. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Here's what Peter knows. Here's what I know this morning about those that are in the room that are truly his. All I have to do to a child of God is remind them of what they've been forgiven of. And then what do we say? How then shall I live? Just show me, Lord. I don't want to waste this life. I got one. So great a salvation is Christ and what He's did. How do I need to live? What do I need to change? What do I need to add? What do I need to cut off? And if you feel that right now, you have one person to thank for it. And it is our Lord Jesus Christ. Who promises us, I begin it and I will complete it. So, God, what do we say to so great a salvation? That, Lord, though we are responsible for these things and they are heavy and they are hard and they are life, they take the rest of our lives and we must do this together. All these things, Lord, but if you would not have saved us, I wouldn't even see them. I wouldn't even know how much I hurt other people. Oh God, I pray that you would bring repentance into the house of God. Not only here, but all over this land. That we would be characterized by those whose lives look like your son's life. That our sacrifice that we undergo willingly would look like your son's sacrifice. And that we would rest because he lives. We live. So, Lord, now we turn to respond to your word. And, Lord, I don't know how people need to respond. You do. So, Lord, would your Holy Spirit do its work. Would you bring salvation? Would you bring repentance? Would you bring restoration? Would you bring forgiveness? Lord, for your glory so that everyone here 
would be effective and fruitful children of God until you come and take us home. So Lord, now, would you receive our worship? We pray our brother's name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand with us. Let's sing.